0: Hi, everybody. Today kicks off a two-part conversation between myself and Dr. Wang addressing some changes coming to the field of neurosurgery. In particular, we're talking about new ways to assess, evaluate, and eventually select candidates for neurosurgical residency. As you may remember if you've been listening to us from the beginning, our podcast was kind of born from the doctor death phenomenon, and the way that we thought about it and the way that we talked about it in those early days often revolved around the selection of neurosurgical candidates and not how to fix somebody like that, but rather how do we prevent people like that from coming into our field. So you could say that the idea of neurosurgical residency selection has been near and dear to our hearts and really in the forefront of our minds from the very inception of this show. In fact, not only could you say that, I will say that because it's true. It's something that we frequently return to, it's something that we frequently think about, because it's something we care about very deeply and very passionately. So as I said, today is the first half of a long conversation Dr. Wang and I had about some upcoming changes to the interview and application process. That's gonna be just the two of us. Subsequently, we will have some guests on who are relevant voices in this field to also discuss these changes and to bring in some fresh outside perspectives instead of you just hearing me and Dr. Wang ranting about these things. But don't expect a protracted mini-series on this topic like we've done with some things in the past. This should just be a few focused episodes addressing this issue while it's on our minds and before we really get toward the interview season process this year so we can kind of explore, examine, and record our thoughts and the thoughts of other leaders in this space. Then once we all get through the interview season, we can kind of talk about how it's going, and then afterwards we can look back and see if reality met, exceeded, or fell short of our expectations. So we truly hope that you enjoy hearing us hash out these ideas and, in some cases, reacting to new information live while recording. I think there is something special about capturing someone's reaction to new information in real time like that. So with that, lest you get sick of my voice before the episode proper even begins, we thank you as always for joining us and listening in. Okay, let's do it. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast.
1: Well, JP, it's been a while. I know for the last couple months, you and I have been kind of doing our own thing because everybody's so busy and we're in that... I don't want to call it post-pandemic phase, but certainly it's a different phase. And I'm so happy to be back on, just you and me, just to chit-chat a little bit about what's happening out there in the world of neurosurgery.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think one of the most fun parts of this show, besides everything we we always acknowledge with our listeners and with our guests and the topics we get to explore, I enjoy just hanging out and talking with you after all these years since I left Miami. So it'll be nice to kind of get back to normal now that you were so busy with double AANS and the new MBA that you've embarked upon and me transitioning through these years of residency. It'll, it'll be nice to kind of settle back down to basics, if you will, and, and get back to the roots of the show.
1: Yeah, the feeling is totally mutual. And I want to thank folks who came to the double ans or were online with us. It was a fantastic meeting. The first major, major meeting of, I don't want to say any specialty in surgery, but almost all of them, um, where we were together in Philadelphia. I had a great time seeing folks again. And uh, it, you know, the smaller meeting or, me- or medium-sized meetings have been live, but for a big, big meeting like this, uh, it is really the first one to get back to normal. I know the CNS had a nice uh, affair the previous year, but it was a free meeting. There are a lot of changes. And so we are really coming on the back end of a lot of stuff, which is what I'd love to talk to you about, JP. Now, uh, I do want to get back to the discussion on the MBA at some point, because I have a lot of information to share with our listeners about how that's going for me. But let's talk a little bit about... What's changed for the young people? Because so many of our listeners are young, whether they're uh, medical students or, or residents. And I feel like the whole fabric of our training programs have shifted a bit.
0: Don't you? I would have to agree. I mean, and, and you, could, you could really attack this at so many levels, because now for the past couple years since the COVID pandemic, pandemic shut down travel, and in-person meetings uh, across the united states uh, as around the world we've been matching and accepting new trainees who we may have never met in person from the institution's perspective that's you know a to some extent a stranger showing up at your hospital and you're trusting them with the lives and well-being of your patients from the applicant's perspective they're showing up sometimes to a city they've never set foot in in a state they've never set foot, much less the hospital where they're going to live, meeting their employers and coworkers, et cetera. So you can imagine in such a high intensity, um, dedicated field like neurosurgery, where you spend so many hours of each day and each week with this group of people in this hospital, you can imagine how jarring that's been psychologically uh, to both the institution and and the new trainees as as we've talked about numerous times on the show and so as each year goes by we learn more and more what kind of effects and what manifestations that change in trainee selection has had in our field yeah i'm extremely disappointed with the process of how this hand was handled and
1: politically i've probably burned some bridges now but the whole idea about like oh you know we're going to do away with these interviews and sub eyes had a, As as far as I can register, when I talk to my colleagues, major negative impacts for lots of programs. Lots of people were matching in places they. I don't want to say they shouldn't be. I don't think there are any bad applicants, but we were certainly surprised by some of the folks that arrived at our program. And I think that's sort of one sided. You indicated that the applicants or the new folks themselves are often surprised, shocked, or caught off guard. And I think that neurosurgery is so robust and people are so strong will make that adjustment. But I think when I look back on this again, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I'll never forget being at the spine section in 2020. And, um, it was the last major meeting before the pandemic kicked in. And I was saying to to Raj Mita, who's the chair of Calgary, like there's a million people going to die by the time this is over with. Mm. And this is before anybody even cared about any of this stuff. And and I'm not saying I'm always right, but I was like, there's going to be a million people that are going to die. That's just a fact. There's nothing we're going to really do to change that. And that's been borne out by all of the various responses of various states and governments and institutions and hospitals. And now, um, we're left on the back end of this with all these new changes that I want to say that a lot of this stuff's politically driven has nothing to do with coronavirus. All these ideas about how we get to know our applicants and how they match with us. And maybe they're timely, maybe maybe they're appropriate, but I don't, maybe I'm old school. I don't know that I agree with all these new things that are happening out there.
0: Well, I do want to underscore one point when we talk about perhaps the mismatching of residents with institutions in the past couple of years with virtual interviews, it it's frequently, I, I won't say universally, but frequently in my experience and what I observe and you know my experience talking to people around the country, both on the institution residency and the applicant side, it's not a question often of someone winding up at a program where they're quote unquote, not good enough, but it really is just a question of fit. How, how could you wind up at a place where you really fit in with the culture, with the personalities, with the way things are done, and with that group of people if you've never met them. And I've said this a million times. I'm sure I've said it on the air. I say it to everyone I, I talk to in person about these things. But so many times in medical and surgical education and then postgraduate training and residency, the decisions are made and these things are structured by a panel of people who because that's the makeup of physicians at large in the United States are medical doctors of of various specialties or or generalists or what have you. And they come from a training background where it's two or three years of residency and a large cohort of 20 or 30 people. And the individual person's personality and psychology may be less important. And these decisions about virtual interviews, and if you're allowed to visit, are being universally applied to every medical school graduate and every residency applicant in the country, regardless of if you're applying into a medical program where there's 30 residents in a year and you train for three years, or if you're applying to a neurosurgical training program for seven years with one or two people in a year, obviously if there's a cultural or personality mismatch in a huge group of people for a couple of years, that is far less impactful than if you have a cultural or personality mismatch in a one a year, seven year program in neurosurgery. And it, it just frustrates me to no end when things are painted with such a broad brush and no one is willing to acknowledge and and just treat everyone as if there are differences between fields. It seems like no one's allowed to say these days that people are different or specialties are different when obviously, structurally, there are stark differences between various residencies.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so a seven-year program, and that's what neurosurgery usually is, is longer than the average American marriage. And you know, you're know, you going to make a decision on who you're going to spend seven years with based on like something on a computer screen. And would you marry someone like that? I, I suppose there are people that are undergoing arranged marriages still in America, but uh, not many. And you know, I, I even hate this idea of telehealth. I've always hated telehealth. And I've argued with lots of neurosurgeons about this. People are like, oh, I love telehealth. I can just sit at my home computer and talk to people. And, you know, if you have any level of granularity of decision making about surgery, like, don't you think there's more that goes into the decision than the MRI findings? And then the other side of it is there's no, there's no buy-in. So the patient that's seeing you on telehealth can see everybody else on telehealth. There's no buy-in. And so like if you're a very powerful um, person who's hard to seek out, I can get it. Like you can screen people faster and all that. But in terms of what actually happens as a doctor, like what are you going to do the surgery through telehealth? Like what the hell? Right. And so I actually know my patients and I want to get to know them and I want to ask them questions and, and understand their, their non, uh, verbal um, Conveyance of 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 who they are, you know, when they're sitting in a room with me. And it's so funny how often you'll be on a telehealth, and I don't want to go on a tangent too much, and you're talking to the patient, you know there's somebody on the side next to them, but you can't see them. And you don't know who's mm. who's listening. And not that you're saying anything that you don't want people to hear. It's just like, wait a minute. If we're in a room together, then that person would feel comfortable asking a question. And I have to say to them, I noticed somebody sitting to your right. Is that your spouse? And then they're like, oh, yeah, here, he or she is. And then they'll show me. And I'm like, well, why don't you be part of the conversation, right? And that kind of like abnormal interaction is part of what makes this so difficult. And I get it. With the board exam now, it's so... I mean, like I got it as an interviewee or as a boards board's um, um examinee, it's so much easier, right? There is no pressure, it's just some guy on a screen now, but I don't know if that's good because in the end, we are humans, we're not like in some kind of metaverse, and you know there's a lot at stake in what we do, so anyways, I don't want to go off too much on a tangent, but I feel like this has been very bad. I feel like The decision making of the stakeholders, and I don't want to call anybody out, you know, just to say, oh, you know, people spend a lot of time flying around. Well, you better you better figure out and prioritize where you're going to go do your sub eyes and interviews. Maybe that's the answer, right? Maybe the solution is not to say, well, people don't need to fly to a place, but now you've got to choose. So we saw that thing happen where the top applicants in the country interviewed everywhere, and they told everybody that they were going to come there, and then the rank list ended up being like, whoa, like wait a minute, these people said they were going to come here and they didn't even rank us kind of thing, right? Did you guys see that happen?
0: Um, We didn't experience that too much. Rush historically keeps a pretty low profile. We don't go crazy promoting the residency. Um, I I think our leadership has historically liked to keep the head under the radar and just do good work and let that reputation speak for itself. So I don't think we attract a lot of uh, those top-level applicants who – Apply to every single program in the country and and kind of send out those signals because we we don't really advertise as strongly to hey everybody in the world come to Rush we we kind of let those who would naturally be drawn here be drawn here. Um, yeah, but- well,
1: you know, Miami's kind of like that, and we kind of get suckered into that. The people that come from everywhere, and they're like, oh yeah, I want to come to Miami. And there's a story that people are coming here just to take a vacation to Miami too, right? That happened right. too and come hang with us and have fun at the interview and not just be like, you know, hostily attacked, you know, or interrogated. But yeah, I I think, I think that, you know, these changes now that parts passed, but now we're in a whole new era, right? So what are you seeing out there with the applicants and with the new interns and all that, that is new? Because I think when we look back at our older episodes from a couple years ago, those were very apropos for a a different era, right?
0: Yeah. I think the, you know, when we talked about doing this episode and and talking about these new changes to trainee selection and early training, the place my mind immediately went was that Hell Week episode we did for uh, people on sub eyes or even early um, internship talking about how to be in a hospital and how to comport oneself and, and how to carry yourself walking through the hospital. And it, it's so funny and ironic that now here we are talking about resident selection where they can't even be in the hospital. And for at least one year, we, we had people that couldn't even do sub eyes Now, blessedly, we're returning to an environment where we can do some away rotations. We can do some in-person sub-internships to actually see how people walk around, actually see how people comport themselves. Can they have normal human interactions with other hospital staff, superiors, uh, professional equals, patients? Because as, as you said, when we were talking about telemedicine, it, it drives me up the wall to think that we're selecting someone whose profession is human to human interaction. Yes, we're a technical discipline. Yes, we do surgeries. Yes, we have to think and reason through diagnostic tests and reach the right answer. But at the end of the day, what we really do with all of those procedures, with all of those diagnostic reasoning uh, answers is interact with other humans, both to garner information and to give information, and to figure you know, figure out what's wrong with them and fix it. So it's just been very frustrating to me that we are hiring people whose primary function will be to interact with other humans, having never seen how they're interacting with other humans. And I, I think that, as you pointed out, across the country, we've been seeing residencies very surprised with what their new trainees are like in person, since we only saw them on a computer screen. So I am very happy to see that we're returning to true in-person externships as part of the application process.
1: And is there a gap? Because I know for for the incoming class and for next year's class, that they had maybe a little bit less clinical experience. Is that right? Or they didn't, they weren't able to go to certain sites for some people, right? For if they had to Uh, select sites, for example, people that were going, uh, I'm just thinking about, for example, Caribbean medical schools, right? Like those folks had to travel to a site in the US. And a lot of that was curtailed during the pandemic. So there's almost like this stunting of their growth, right? They didn't get as much of that in their third and fourth years. Um, Are you experiencing any of that?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, in, in these years during the pandemic, with limited travel, there are people trying to enter neurosurgery who had either small or no neurosurgical departments at their home program. And they were unable to do an away rotation with a neurosurgical program and, and thus have the experience, have the letters of recommendation from actual neurosurgeons. That's obviously a giant hindrance in the application process. But even at a more fundamental level than that, um, there are, in, for, you know, affecting every discipline of medicine, there were a couple years of students barred from entering the hospital either entirely for some periods of time or in very limited capacity. And so not even thinking about the practicalities of applying to neurosurgery and who can recommend you or not, but just thinking about your growth and development into a physician. Imagine not entering a hospital for your entire third year of medical school, which is clinically the heaviest period where you do your fundamental rotations. You spend the most time being in a hospital, learning how to walk around and get things done learning how to approach a stranger in a hospital bed and get them to tell you the truth about whatever symptoms are bothering them, learning how to deliver bad news, just completely barred from having that in-person practical hands-on experience in their training as physicians, much less you know, all of the application process to neurosurgery.
1: Yeah, so can I ask, because I never explored this, what happened to those folks that were in their third and fourth years when they weren't on clinical rotation, what were they doing? What what, what were they assigned to do by their medical schools? Do you know?
0: You know, I I can only answer this anecdotally, of course, based on the the friends or people I knew who were going through medical school at the time, which, you know, and obviously my knowledge will be limited because I was a junior resident at the same time. And so uh, like many of us, I had a telescopic vision for my own life and my own busyness, but uh, Predominantly, what I heard was people were doing virtual classes, virtual rotations, simulations, and and much like we're talking about telehealth, seeing patients on a computer screen, reading textbooks, uh, just more and more simulated, quote unquote, clinical experience rather than walking into a room with a sick person and experiencing the real thing.
1: Yeah. And, and this also coincided with the change in board scores, right? I I still don't understand this. I'm, I'm trying to get my head around this about step one. Yep. It's pass fail. Now
0: that's for the whole country. You don't even get a score. Like you're not allowed to get a score to my understanding. Right. You just have a pass or a fail. Um, I believe step two is still a, a scored exam, which will have a numerical grade associated with it. Um, although typically people take that much later in medical school when, the interview application process is, uh, is uh, either underway or complete and rank lists are in. Obviously, people are now taking that early and early, uh, earlier and earlier to have some kind of score to give to uh, residency programs to differentiate themselves. But that that's the issue is that for a decade or more, most medical schools have been moving towards a pass fail system rather than ranked gradings. And that's coming out of medical school. So then step one, became the great differentiator because it was some numerical, easily quantified score where students could distinguish themselves from their peers by performing better on an exam. And now that that's become pass fail as well, um, everyone's kind of scrambling to look for some way to screen applicants to their residency program and, and just distinguish people on paper.
1: Yeah. When I went to medical school at Stanford, uh, ancient uh, time ago, it was was 1990s, (laughs) early 90s. Um, We didn't have, it was one of the first medical schools to not have grades and to not have AOA. Uh, The Mm. idea not being sort of this sort of uh, socialist mentality wasn't that. It's that they encouraged us to all go five years of medical school and we spent our time doing research and every lecture was recorded the only thing mandatory was actually anatomy so i actually had a classmate that finished in three years i know people are doing this now like at nyu i'm talking about someone who finished all of their classes and all of their rotations in three years and left and became hmm. um beca- i think that person ended up being a pathologist and but most people at stanford did five years and so we would spend the first three years taking the classes and everything was recorded. Um, and we would spend, like I did, you know, 60 hours a week in the lab. And we would hmm. be in, in the lab doing research or teaching. I was a teaching assistant for biology, like a PhD uh, candidate does. And in the process, your Stanford tuition is essentially paid. So you pay three years of the four years of tuition. You only have to pay four years of tuition. You're there for five. And so while you're a TA or a RA, research associate, like in a PhD setting, if you're any good usually you're paid right you're paid people don't have to pay to do their phd in general unless you i'm going to get in trouble for this unless you kind of suck like people are getting you know right they're, they're, those are the people grading the exams in your your calculus class or your uh your engineering class or your biology class and so all the medical students were busy doing this and working in the labs and getting paid but the pay all went to the tuition and so you finish stanford medical school which is an expensive place a private school with almost no debt But you got five years out of it and you also got a CV replete with accomplishments that would help you match in residency. In fact, they discouraged the people to study for the boards. My board percentile was like 76 percentile or something like that. Nobody studied for the boards. It wasn't a thing at Stanford. And so you didn't have that, but you would have like these papers or experiences or recommendation letters. And um, and it was very different, right? But now what I'm seeing is that this movement. I mean, what explain to me, JP? What's the idea behind making the Step One pass fail?
0: Well, as with everything in in life these days, and with medical education, much like uh, the loss of grading systems across medical schools, it's you know to to remove undue advantage between students, and I, I suppose to better anonymize and make more fair the application process for residency. So I, so I don't understand that because then how does a program figure out
1: who is going to be able to be a neurosurgeon? Because it's not straightforward. It's not just a choice, right? You don't just say, I want to be a neurosurgeon and then voila, you're a neurosurgeon. It's it's more to it than that, right? Which is the whole point of all this discussion. Like, what, what, How is a program, how is Rush deciding who they're going to rank high? rank highly and who they're not going to rank highly.
0: I obviously agree with you. And, and, and I do think to some extent, the way that the step one score has had become used and so prized in recent years was perhaps inappropriate or taken too far. I, I know that at many programs, wherever you set the floor, there, there would be a cutoff for the step one score where we won't even review applications if they have a step one score lower than blank. And, you know, if per, perhaps that score is some reasonable, uh, reasonably low number where it indicates to you this person won't pass their written boards, this person doesn't know how to manage their time. Um, but you can always imagine that there's some exception to these rules where someone, you know, had gastroenteritis the day that they took step one or is genuinely an excellent clinician and hard worker, but is just a terrible test taker or, or et cetera, et cetera. And, and so I, I think the spirit behind it was to level the playing field and let people at least have their applications reviewed so that you could see what their other accomplishments or, or positive marks are rather than being out of the gate, eliminated from the pool just because of a single numerical score. That being but said, what,
1: yeah. go ahead. No, but what other measure? So, so saying someone has lots of papers is a measure of a different parameter. Right. So it, so you're right. It's not, it shouldn't be so unidimensional. I agree with you hundred percent, but that parameter of being able to answer questions appropriately and understand how to take a test in a certain amount of time on a given day is an important parameter to measure with regards to some, some prediction of success. Right. In other words, that it's, it's like saying, well, you know, if, if I hadn't had a bad day, that surgery would have gone great. That doesn't matter.
0: Right. There's no I, and
1: difference I, and I, in that patient.
0: And I couldn't agree with you more. I often, uh, I, I make a joke, you know, Olympians don't get diarrhea, right? Because, yeah. it, okay, what, you're, you're sick the morning of the Olympics? No. If, if you're the kind of person who gets a stomach bug and can't perform the morning of your Olympics meet, you probably never would have made it that far. So it, again, it's it kind of like when we're talking about the differences in various residency disciplines Uh, between how much you put stock in the in-person interview and, and meeting someone. I think there's, again, this broad brush painted where to us within neurosurgery, our culture is such that, but also, as you point out, the inaction of our actual surgical discipline depends upon the members of our field being able to perform whenever needed. Obviously, there are extreme scenarios where you know that that rule is accepted, but you're right, oh, you had a bad day and so the surgery went poorly. That's not acceptable. And so to me, thinking about the step one score being used as a screening or a ranking agent for residency applicants, it wasn't a who's smarter or who's a hard worker. It's just a measure of here is a standardized task that every single medical student in the country has put before them. You know when you're going to take the test. You know what's on the test. Everybody has the same materials, standardized task. How well did you perform at that? And so it, you know, it, it was treated as and critiqued as some unfair differentiator between people. But to me, it was actually a level playing field because no matter who your instructor is at medical school, what your tests are in your class and how they're graded that goes into your, your GPA and your class ranking if you still have that, whether or not your medical school has AOA, whether or not your medical school has a national luminary and neurosurgery to write you a letter. All of those things are a function of where you happen to go to medical school and where you live. But the step one exam was the same test for every person with the same materials and the same process, you get one day, you take it, that's it. So to me, it was a great standardizer and a great leveler of the playing field to say, how did you perform at task blank? And now well, we've, we've lost that as well as a way to rank people.
1: Yeah, let me, let me go back to your gastroenteritis example, because some people who are more <laughs> naive will say, well, that's not fair. And, and here's, here's the answer to that. If you're really that sick, you're not going to take the test. And then there is no score registered, and you'll have to take it another day. In the same sense, and this is, I'll use the surgical analogy if you're not ready to perform the surgery, then cancel the surgery. But it is not appropriate to say, well, I don't feel good this day, and I'm going to go try to just muddle through and fuck somebody's life up
0: because I didn't feel good that day. That's that's exactly the parameter. That's just it. Because if you perform poorly on a test, because you say I had a headache that day, or I'm just not a great test taker, you shouldn't have taken it because you know that your whole career depends on it. Much like nice. if I have a migraine this morning, or I'm a little hungover and my hands are shaky, or I have, I'm have i stomach sick today, so I'm distracted. If that's going to affect the way you perform a surgery, you shouldn't even do the surgery. So taking a test that important when you feel impaired or not at your best belies a weakness in decision-making, right? It's a judgment problem. And I'll I'll take it even further. This is one test you take once in
1: your life. It impacts you and you have proximate control over it. If you can't make that proximate decision, that same individual is going to care. I guarantee you a lot less about surgery that happens on a weekly or daily basis. And it's somebody else's life. I guarantee you, everybody listening, and 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 I guarantee you this, cares more, and this is a harsh statement, but it's a reality of human nature, about their ability to score well on step one than how their patient's going to do on their surgery. Because you're going to do thousands of surgeries. I'm not saying you don't care about this one person who's your mother or something. I'm saying you're going to do thousands of surgeries, and if anybody thinks that they're going to treat that patient with such a high regard that they're going to think about it more than what the, the test that decides their fate. I think they're lying to themselves. They're absolutely naive or or unrealistic or just don't have any experience with the world. So people make decisions based primarily on what's good for themselves, right? That's the nature of human beings and they should. So if someone can't make that decision and prepare properly for it, that person has no business showing up to the operating room and operating on one of your relatives or my relatives or friends or just some random homeless person for that matter. It's just not the way we function. Now, if you're a doc that just writes a couple prescriptions and measures someone's blood pressure and gives some advice about domestic violence or something like that, that's fine. You can have a crappy day and it won't make any difference really in the aggregate. Maybe statistically there's a percentage change, but if you're going to step into an operating room and do a seven hour operation and not have your head screwed on straight and you're tired or you're, you're physically weak or whatever, that's a person that I'm not sure should be in this field, at least the way it exists today. Maybe you can do certain things like gamma knife. Maybe you can do smaller surgeries, but certainly you should not be one of the candidates for doing complicated life altering operations, which is why people pick neurosurgery in the first place. You know what I mean? That's that's that part that really bugs me about this thing. It's not because I, I know people are some people are not going to take tests and let me go back to the, to the, to the, to the grades. It's different. So, Medical schools that have grades, and again, I went to a medical school that was pass-fail for this reason. If you think a test is biased, well, guess what? I'll bet that when you go on rotation for internal medicine or pediatrics, the attractive people, and however you want to define that, get better grades. Because yeah. there you have an instructor that's scoring you subjectively, oh, I think that person did really well, or I think this person did poorly. And if you're Ugly and fat, or you stutter, or you know you 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 look unkempt, and, and those are important things too. That's going to affect your grade. It absolutely does, right? And 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 that's an area where it is exceedingly subjective. Now, I'm not saying we should get away get a uh, get away from AOA and grades. I'm just saying they're different parameters. Grades are not the same as standardized tests. It's a different dimension. Sorry, I'm ranting now.
0: No, I mean I I think. To be honest, we're both ranting a little bit, and that's what I wanted to underscore. For, for those of you listening who are in medical school or haven't yet been in a position, You know, even I have in such a limited capacity as a junior resident, but if you've not yet been in a position where you evaluate someone junior to yourself in the professional pathway and have any comment on who should be selected to train in your institution, please know that we're ranting this much and we're going... It it sounds crazy how much we're talking about a test score, right? But it really comes down to what Dr. Wang was just saying about this all translates to 15 years from now when you're alone in a room with a knife and a patient under anesthesia. And the fact that we're ranting like this and the fact that we're spending 15 minutes talking about the loss of a test score is because it's one component in an almost Indescribably difficult but important task that we all have to do, which is selecting who gets to be a neurosurgeon in this country. And that, you know, selecting who gets to be a cardiac surgeon, an emergency medicine doctor, these are all important. This is our purview. And when we're selecting neurosurgeons, because we know how few of us there are in the nation and how few of us there are in a given city or county, we know that we're selecting someone that may operate on our friends, on our children, on our parents, on ourselves. And so please understand that when you're hearing us rant like this, one day when you get to the position where you're selecting people, you will understand the pressure that you feel when you're deciding, well, I have two seats in my residency this year and hundreds of people in the country that want it. How do I pick one? And I always go back to our very first episode finishing season one of this show with Dr. G, Dr. Steve Giannotti, who came on talking about Dr. Death and what he pointed out These words have never left my mind that neurosurgical resident selection is a fine filter, and that all of these bright, ace, top students around the country sign up to be neurosurgeons. And in the process of interviewing and rotating and finally matching, it's a fine filter that we all pass through. And every time we lose some way to distinguish people, however perfect or imperfect that tool is, it punches a big hole in that fine filter. And the filter becomes more coarse. And, and that's the I think the frustration and the passion that our listeners keep hearing is that we're losing more and more information about people to perform this Herculean task of selecting who gets to be a neurosurgeon in our country.
1: Yeah, so I was having dinner last night with a friend of mine who's an orthopedic spine surgeon up in Boca Raton, who's it's not very far from Miami, and we were just going off, because he's one of the few ethical guys up there, about basically <laughs> everybody, and, and I don't mean it's everybody, but it's 85% of people up in that quarter of Florida, um, is doing surgery that's not necessary. I don't mean every surgery. I mean, they're frequently doing surgeries on car accident victims and making a ton of money per case. And by by a ton of money, what I'm talking about is six figures for a surgery on a 22-year-old who doesn't need an operation. And Mm -hmm. many of our graduates from Miami have fallen into this trap. And they're like, well, the money's just too good, Dr. Wang. Money's just too good. I mean, I only have to do a handful of surgeries a year and I can make a million bucks. And they all do it. And even if they just mean they don't mean to do the wrong thing, they get sucked into it. And so these filters aren't just about um, are you going to be a good surgeon or are you going to be able to get up at night to answer the phone. It's like the ethical piece too. Like if you can't, if you don't have competence, you can't be ethical. Because then you're like, well, I got to pay my mortgage too, so I got to find a way. And my wife expects it. And my kids expect it. So they got private school. So I'm going to do this stuff and just a little bit of it, and it's not going to be too bad. And then it becomes more and more and more. And the, the lawyers are super good at this. They usually throw you a case where it's like indicated, right? Car accident case. And then you do the case and like, oh, the patient did great. And then you get a check in the mail that's something like six figures. And you're like, whoa, that's like, uh, you know, several months work in like an hour. Like, let's do more of this. And then they get sucked in. Now, there are some disagreeable people like me uh, who will weigh in on this and say, that's wrong. That's the beginning of the end of our field, and we've had Ed Benzel on to talk about stuff like this, right? Uh, Ed Benzel and Dan Resnick were very vocal about this, and they see it happening. This kind of stuff, uh, not even as bad as Florida, just unindicated surgery for Medicare rates. But this kind of stuff is—it's—it it, it, when you let the people in are the wrong people, the the problems magnify, they proliferate, they exponentially increase. And then those people influence people below them. And then you got a whole cadre of people following that are basically something on the border of criminality. And I, I'm, I, I'm not trying to use that word lightly, because I know a lot of people will say, well, you, how do you stand up and say everything you do is right? And I'm not saying everything I do is right. But I try to do everything that I should to do it correctly. In other words, I try to make the decisions correctly. And so I worry about this a lot, JP. And before before we got on the recording, you were telling me about something else that's new, right? Something new about how applicants are applying and that their, they're their expressing interest.
0: Okay. We're going to call it there for today. Do please come back next week to hear the second half of this conversation with myself and Dr. Wang. Astute listeners may have been able to pick up where we're going with this conversation and of course you could probably anticipate there are going to be some classic unfiltered Mike Wang hot takes. So it's a conversation you don't want to miss the rest of. It was a lot of fun to have. Hopefully you're enjoying listening to it and As always, please write to us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com if you have any opinions or, of course, corrections for any of the information we're sharing this episode. Like we say multiple times, this is kind of from the seat of our pants here, so we're always open to your feedback, and if we are making any mistakes or misstating or misrepresenting any facts, please let us know. We'll be more than happy to correct ourselves on air. We love to hear from our listeners, even when it's to tell us, hey, guys, you got this wrong. So we'll see you all back next week. Thank you for listening. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.